podcast is brought to you by Bob Anderson, the co-author of a new book entitled Mastering Leadership. Please listen to podcast number 724, where Bob and Greg speak about what is required of a leader today to thrive in our current business environment. In Greg's interview with Bob, they speak about an extraordinary framework that Bob created called the Leadership Circle Profile and how this assessment is changing the way leaders see themselves. The self-assessment comes with the book. The book integrates the best theory, research, and practice into the first universal model of leadership. It radically shifts the understanding of extraordinary leadership and how a champion is developed. Please listen to podcast number 724 with author Bob Anderson, the founder of The Leadership Circle. For more information about the book and their services, please visit www.theleadershipcircle.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyce and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Scott, as I do every time I come on one of these shows, I thank the listeners. As you know, uh, doing your own show, Great Life, Great Career on iHeartRadio. Um, what would a good podcaster or radio announcer be if they didn't have people that listen to their show? So I am eternally grateful for the people that come back again and again from around the world to listen to the words of wisdom from our authors. And our author today, joining us from Salt Lake City, is out on a book tour and is Scott Jeffrey Miller. And the book we're going to be speaking about is called Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. Uh, Scott, good day to you. How are you doing? I'm great, Greg. Honored to be here. And I second your appreciation for your podcast listeners. That's what it's all about. It is. And uh, when we get the great messages, that's what we love. We love people that write into us. And because you are the uh, president of Franklin Covey, I want to let, or I say executive vice president, how's that? I want to let our listeners know a bit about you. Many of my listeners already know who Franklin Covey is, but I'm sure some of the millennials might not know who Franklin Covey is. Um, You're entering your 23rd year with Franklin Covey. Uh, Scott serves as the executive vice, vice president of thought leadership. He's the host of Franklin Covey-sponsored Franklin Covey on Leadership with Scott Miller, a weekly leadership webcast, podcast, and newsletter that features interviews with renowned business titans, authors, and thought leaders, and is distributed to more than 5 million business leaders worldwide. He's also the host of a weekly radio program called Great Life, Great Career with Scott Miller on iHeart, which is KNRS 105.9. Um, Miller leads the strategy development publications for Franklin Covey's best-selling books and thought leadership, uh, which provide the framework for the company's world-renowned content and solutions. Uh, in his previous roles as executive vice president of business development and chief marketing officer, uh, Scott led the global transformation of Franklin Covey, and they have been through a transformation. Uh, he joined in 96 and he's been his professional career since 92 with Disney Development Company. So Scott's been around and he's got another book coming out in October that you all should look for where he co-authors, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. Uh, Good day to you, Scott. And it's great having you on uh, the show with me. And I deserve a raise. Yeah, you do. Well, you know, actually, when you read the book and you look at the list of things you do to get prepared for your radio 
and podcast show as I do. I get five or six books in here a week. Uh, right. It becomes a challenge to just try and keep the pace and still balance your life. And with that being said, you know, you personally admit to all kind of messes that you've created um, messes, not only personally, but professionally. Um, and one of them that you talk about right off in the book was when you went out and got the Salt Lake Tribune uh, <laughs> newspaper and you were in this meeting with these people and, and you threw the newspapers down in front of them and said, you know, if you're looking for a job and a few of them got up and walked out on you. Um, you know, that must have been a, a bit humiliating for you. Even at that, though, you didn't believe you were in the wrong. Um, speak about that mess, if you would. Yeah, I think it was humiliating for the people that I was treating poorly as much as it was for me. You know, I wrote this book because I really wanted to, I wanted to add a new book to the collection of leadership, you know, volumes that was more relatable, that was identifiable. So I chose to share quite vulnerably with some risk my own messes because there's lots of them. And I think if people are introspective and self-aware, everyone's got a series of management messes. So I wrote this book around 30 challenges. The first challenge was about demonstrating humility. This has not come easy to me. I'm a pretty successful salesperson. I don't know that high producers are always correlated with being super humble people. So this first challenge around demonstrating humility he has this horrifying story. I'm, I'm promoted to a leadership role over my peers, which is often the case. I'm not prepared for it. I think that the same skills that, you know, earned me the number one sales role in the division with the same skills that would translate over to leading people. And we both know that's horrifyingly not true. I'm happy to expound on that if you want. But I called this meeting together with my, you know, literally a day earlier, 13 peers, all salespeople, many of them more skilled than me. And I bring them together for a two-day training. They're late to the meeting, which was, you know, was not appropriate, but not the end of the world. And on the second day, I was so incensed at my, my, my perceived slight, the lack of respect they'd shown the new leader, right? I mean, I was 26 and quite frankly, a jerk. And so I, instead of bringing in pastries the next morning, I stop at the grocery store, I buy dozen plus copies of the local paper, and I hand everybody a copy of the classifieds. I literally, in my, my idiotic genius, I think this is going to inspire them to respect me more, want to keep their jobs, and just be on time. I hand them the classified ads, and as I mentioned in the book, amongst dozens of similarly regretful stories, if you want a job from nine to five, Dillard's is hiring, referencing the department store. And then I handed them a highlighter. And in my vast immaturity and low EQ, I kind of thought I was metaphorically, you know, kind of peeing around the tree, so to speak. Like, you know, I'm the leader. This is, we're going to, we're going to be disciplined. And I think there was some good intention. I wanted people to turn their performance around. I got promoted for a reason. The team needed stronger leadership. They needed to be more productive and meet their goals. But I went about it entirely the wrong way. I humiliated myself and them. I insulted them. I didn't understand what leadership was really about. And I worked for a leadership development company. So that's one of, like I mentioned, you know, 30 stories that I share because I wanted people to realize we've all done this, if not that exactly, Greg, something like that. And I wrote it in the hopes that people would say, wow, that's insane. And I've been tempted to do something like that. 
in the hopes that my stories would help them avoid some of the same pitfalls that I've found myself in time and time again. Well, it was a great way to open the book up, and you tell a lot of stories. And, and you and the management team at Covey have come up with 30 of these challenges, which, uh, you know, the book has got a story, it's got a lot of reflection, and then you go into the challenge, actually. But the stories that you tell are awesome because they, they relate around the challenge. Um, and it does allow you as Brene Brown said, and you mentioned in your interview, to be vulnerable, right? Leaders have to be vulnerable. Um, I know that Marshall Goldsmith's been on this show four or five times. And, you know, when you talk about somebody who's coached leadership, probably one of the best in the nation. And you, you, your second challenge is around think abundantly. We're going to bounce around here, Scott, on some of these because we can't cover all 30. And we're going to encourage our listeners to go out and purchase the book. Uh, because the reality here is that's how you're going to get to understand all 30 of these challenges. But in the second, you talk about abundantly, and you have this story about a luncheon that you did, and you failed to think abundantly. Um, you say that it's human nature to feel scarcity when you have fear, and we don't have enough. Enough of whatever, it doesn't even matter if it's money, it could be enough self-esteem, enough anything. Um, what would you tell our listeners who are out there today who aren't thinking abundantly? They're not, they don't have the think and grow rich attitude. Um, what would you say as a leader? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a human condition thinking abundantly. I think maybe it's a Western economic marketplace driver, but we're naturally, I think, rewarded to think scarcely, to have what Dr. Stephen Covey called a scarce mentality, which was, you know, I get, quote, mine first, whether the, whether it is, you know, something on the buffet at a restaurant, whether it's attention, fame, resources, paper clips, you know, uh, reimbursements, whatever it is, I think we're naturally focused on a scarce mentality. And in the leadership role, the opposite has to be, you know, be, be the case, not just within your division, but cross-divisional. Do you have the greater good of the organization in mind? Do you have your people's greater good in mind? As when you become a leader, as you well know, you have to make a mind, mindset shift. You have to change your paradigm. No longer is it about you winning the trophies, you earning President's Club, you getting the fame and attention. That spotlight now must be turned on your people because no longer are you recognized for your own contributions. You are now rewarded and recognized or, or you know, uh, scolded, if you will, for the results of your team. You have to now get results through with other people. So this idea of an abundance mindset is really about, you know, when is enough for you? And I share a story around how I was once considering moving from Provo, Utah, up to Park City, about 50 miles away. As you know, Park City is a ski resort town, a little more extensive. And from a single guy from Florida that had just moved to Provo, Utah, I was looking for a little more activity and nightlife and such. There's a story behind that, as you can imagine. So as I'm getting ready to consider doubling my rent up in Park City, my then leader, his name was Charles Fombuena. I mean, this man is wise beyond wise. I was just kind of talking to him about kind of, should I move to Park City, should I not? And he said to me something that was prophetic. He said, you'll never have enough until you define how much is enough. That could be in your paycheck, 
It could be in love. It could be in, you know, uh, recognition. And so I, I share in this story, you don't have to blow out the other person's light to let your own shine. As a leader, one of your main jobs is to attract and retain talent. And it really, the, the focus comes off of you onto other people. So this idea of an abundance mentality is a mindset shift that will reward you substantially in your career and in your personal life. Yeah, and it very well said. I think that, you know, as you mentioned, it's important that good leaders, if you're following the the Greenleaf leadership model, you know, it's turned on its head, you're there mm-hmm. to serve the other people, right? You're there to help them become successes. And when you help them become successes, you'll become a success. And, you know, with your sales background, and I know because I was there, that's what I did. Then I founded four or five different little startup companies. And I know what it's like to be a leader. And I also know what it's like to, you said you had this propensity to interrupt, especially interrupt when you're in meetings. And it's, I think it's true about a lot of CEOs because their ego says, well, their idea is better than everybody else's in the room. And I remember what Steve Jobs once said. He said, you know, when you come in this room to help develop products, he said, leave your ego at the door, even though he probably had one of the biggest egos around. So you, you talk about this, that you mentioned that, you know, now you host your own radio show. How have you learned to listen better? And what advice would you give to the listeners about listening better? And you also speak about three types of listening. I should say four types of listening that you could relate to our listeners as well. Yeah, Greg, I could riff on this for 30 minutes. So can I take five? <laughs> you can take as long as you need to, knowing that we only have 30 minutes. So go ahead. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> let, me, let me take five on this. But, but I think the reason you're asking this is you know not just the value of this, but how difficult this is. So I, I, I have struggled with this my entire career. I, I struggle with it today, today. I think it's counterintuitive for leaders to think about the value of listening for a couple of reasons. When you become a leader, you probably have been trained pretty fiercely on being a great communicator, right? You've mastered PowerPoint or Keynote. You know how to work a stage. You've built your vocabulary. You know that one of your jobs is to influence through persuasion. In fact, I'm often accused of being in sort of persuasion mode too much. You become a powerful communicator because you have to get your message across, communicate your vision. And those are probably great talents. For a lot of leaders and it served me well you know being a, a a competent enough communicator has been an asset for me the problem with that is it is counterintuitive to think about listening as a communication competency listening is a leadership skill and it requires a tremendous amount of humility for a leader to really just close their mouth and listen to other people but it also is a relationship skill And we all know that great leaders are those that help to engage their people. They create a culture where people feel valued and respected and listened to. Doesn't mean as a leader, you have to agree with every every decision. Doesn't mean you create a consensus or a democracy. Organizations are not democracies. And leaders that try to accommodate every point of view turn 30 minute meetings into three hour meetings. I've been in hundreds of those before. But listening is a skill that I would encourage every leader 
to really think about assessing your own blind spots because it's not natural. When you become the leader, you also think your job is to solve all the problems, be the smartest person in the room. The buck stops with you. And some of that is true. The buck probably does stop with you. But to quote my good friend and coach Liz Wiseman, who wrote what I think is one of the best leadership books written in the past decade, Multipliers. It's a book that everybody should check out. I, I'm an unabashed evangelist of Liz's book, Multipliers, not part of the Franklin Covey suite. She's a competitor in some ways. She talks about how when we become leaders, we are either the genius or we're the genius maker. And that humble, confident leaders don't have to be the smartest person in the room. They can listen, lift up other people's ideas, make it safe for others to risk sharing a half-baked idea. Because listening, like I mentioned, is a bit counterintuitive. When we listen to other people, it takes, Greg, an unprecedented level of selflessness. It takes patience, discipline. It takes empathy. I mean, empathy you see all over the place now as a leadership competency. Great leaders are empathic leaders. And I mentioned in the book how difficult it is, it is to listen because naturally we want to solve people's problems, especially men, right? It's kind of a well-known fact that men like to get to the root of the problem with their spouses and uncover it, peel the onion, and solve the problems. And, and our, I think our, our, we're well-intended on all these questions, probing, evaluating, interpreting, trying to put our own field of experience on someone else, but it's not helpful in our personal life or our professional life. So my challenge out to everyone would really understand, understand what are your listening skills? Have you had any training around that? Can you resist the temptation to always interrupt, rush in, and ask questions that probably, like I mentioned, are well-intended, but they're quite frankly from your own paradigm, your own field of reference. And if you can't exercise the discipline to kind of just gently close your lips, count to seven when someone else is talking, resist the interruption, you're not going to develop relationships that are really meaningful because you're always kind of rushing in and sharing your thoughts. Like I said, well-intended, but rarely validating. doesn't mean you have to agree with the other person's point of view, but the, the culture of trust, respect, and honor that you'll build from just resisting the impulsivity, the natural proclivity, if you will, to interrupt, get to the point, and move on will build a level, a little bit of culture that is unreplicable in your industry. I really encourage people, read the book. I talk about the four types of listening popularized by Dr. Covey in his book, and I share some kind of funny examples of how I've been taught how not to interrupt. I think they're actually quite practical. Very practical. And uh, this show that many of my listeners know is brought to you by Compassionate Communications, which is my nonprofit. And over the years, almost 13 years of doing this show, Scott, I have had to cultivate that skill. Um, and, you know, there is a direct link between suffering and becoming more compassionate with people. So when people are in pain, your role is to be there deeply with them, compassionately with them. Now, one of the things that you... Um, speak about is making and keeping commitments. And you you put on that chapter, you actually listed all the stuff that you <laughs> have to do, right? It's like, you're doing a radio show, you're doing a podcast show, you're managing people, you're doing this, you're managing your family and your wife and your kids. 
and all the things that you have to do. And we all have lots of things to do, or at least leaders usually do. The one, the people that we're talking about. Um, so I think I'm going to flip this around on you a bit. How has Scott Miller learned to say no comfortably in his life to all the things that people bring to you as a leader? Because that's as important as taking on the commitments that are important to you. Well, in short, I haven't. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be just authentic about that. I haven't. In fact, just this morning, I was meeting with my launch manager, Drew, talking about, you know, I've, I write a column for Inc. Magazine. I've been awarded an article in um, Thrive Global by Arne Huffington. I, I'm pitching a reality TV program. I actually have a corporate responsibility to Franklin Covey, right? I have an executive level job independent of the books that I'm launching and authoring. So I actually am really bad at this. I actually, actually, I'm really poor at this because I like to, I think more is better and more is not better. Better is better. I recognize if I were to shut off seven of the 15 things I'm doing, I would be, do a lot of them in A quality and not B or even C quality. Now, should I have a radio program? Should I be writing my fourth book? At the end of the day, my main role in life is as father, husband, and provider. Nothing can come at the expense of me raising these three young boys with my wife and keeping my marriage together. That is my legacy, right? Your, your job is a career. Your job is not your life. And I think too often leaders like me get caught up in their identity is their title. It's their W-2. And when you go to a cocktail party and someone says, tell me about you. I'm really trying to start with, I'm a dad of three boys, five, seven, and nine. I'm Stephanie's husband. So for me, I'm really trying to make better decisions, learn to say no. It is, it's tough for me because I'm on the cusp of you know, gaining some influence as an author. I think my, my, my experience is resonating with millions of people worldwide around their messes and their frustrations. I think too many leadership books are academic and aspirational. They're not relatable. So I'm, 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 I'm like you. I'm getting lots of offers to write more and speak more. And I want my brand to be that I'm my batting average, so to speak, is seven for seven, not seven for 10. Because that's what best describes me. I'm seven for 10. Seven people love me and adore me because I killed it on their podcast or I delivered on the article on time. But the three that I left in a lurch don't love me. Now, hopefully that's a bit of a metaphor versus reality. I'm trying to be more deliberate about what do I say yes to and what do I say no to, especially as a parent. So it, it is, it's, a, it's a challenge, I think, Greg, also because we're not faced with less choice. Netflix isn't going to have less programming next month, right? Whole Foods and Amazon aren't going to have less products. You know, there's just an onslaught of opportunity and great parents great leaders, great friends are very deliberate around what their values are. I could talk about that for some time. I'm very clear on what my 12 values are. My first mm -hmm. value is purpose in life, is uncovering my purpose, my mission, and making sure that I don't take on two more podcasts tonight that interrupt that 40-minute tennis time that I've scheduled with my oldest son. That is what's most important to me, and I've got to be careful not to you know, get into this un imbalance in life 
We all have seasons of our life. My seasons right now is out of balance, but seasons come and go. So I've got to be really mindful of what my priorities are. What's my purpose and legacy? I hope that you, was helpful. I think, I well, think people I think, can relate you know, to look, that. The more you personally reflect on it, being vulnerable on my show about what it is that you're trying to juggle, it gives the listeners who are listening, who have all of those lists of things to do that they're attempting to accomplish. And I happened to play in a meeting, and this relates to my next question around vision. Um, Steve Jobs' address to the 2011 class of uh, Stanford. And he said the biggest wake-up call he had for completing his goals was the fact that we know we're all going to die. And he had just, actually during that address, he'd, he'd gotten through a bout before he had the second bout with pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the poignant thing was, and I think to all of us is, when you see people striving so much, that's fine as long as you put it in balance and perspective, because in the end, we're all, none of us are getting out of here alive, right? <laughs> now, what your spiritual belief is, is up to you. And that brings me to this next question, because when you, when you drive a group of people as executive vice president of a company like Franklin Covey, the key is aligning these people toward a common compelling vision that relate and communicate the passion within them and within you, and it's no small task. What advice would you have for our listeners out there who have companies or they're head of a division or they're doing whatever, and they're trying to create this compelling vision? And, and one guy, Cameron, I forget his name, he has a TEDx talk and he calls it Vivid Vision. Um, and I love it because, you know, putting a vision statement on the wall is not really the vision. Some of the best advice I ever got was from Chuck Farnsworth. He actually recruited me from Disney to Franklin Covey, one of my personal heroes. And he said to me, you know, Scott, your legacy in life is really what's going to matter most professionally and personally. Think about what you want your legacy to be. And he was a very – he is still alive. He's a very competent business leader, very accomplished. And he said, Scott, no one is going to remember 10 years from now whether you met or exceeded your second quarter EBITDA your cost of goods was 4 or 8% over or under. Now, you have to be a competent leader to grow, you know, return to your shareholders. You obviously have to grow as a company if, you're, if that's your mandate. But what people are going to remember is how you treated them, how you lifted them up, how you moved them into a better place in life, built their 401K, helped their college tuitions, built their confidences. So you have to be able to – you have to hit the EBITDA – and the profit margin to, to keep your job so you can have an impact on people. But that was so profound to me because I think I did an excellent job when I was a you know, sales leader meeting my forecast, meeting my financial commitments. But I, it really changed my paradigm on recognizing that the people who were reporting to me, I had a chance to positively impact their life. And not always just through being aspirational, but sometimes having high courage conversations. You know, straight talk and helping them call out their blind spots. But to your point around vision, great leaders don't just have a vision for the business. They have a vision for their life. I, I love this concept of knowing your story. 
I was once interviewing Eric Barker. He wrote a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It dispels a lot of kind of social lies we're told yeah, about. Yeah, he, he was on my show as well. A great book. Yeah, an excellent book. And, and, and he talked in my interview about uh, on my podcast on, you know, owning your own story. And I kind of thought that's interesting, but I didn't quite understand. Kind of sounded like yoga, important, but I didn't have time. And then literally the next day, Greg, I was getting ready to interview Viola Davis who was, of course, the famed actor, producer, Oscar, Tony, Emmy, all that. And she also was talking about the power of owning her story. So I went home that night. This relates directly to this idea of creating vision. For leaders, you got to know your own story. You know, and I, and I went home that night. And, Greg, I'm not kidding you. I, I went into the kitchen at 1030 at night, and I pulled out a wire whisk from the kitchen as like a microphone. And I walked around my living room for about 45 minutes. At the age of 50, I'm in my boxer shorts, right, way past bedtime, and I just out loud told myself my story, where I was raised, what my parents were like, what my parents' struggles were, right? Children of alcoholics, and my father's dad died when he was 10, his twin brother caught polio, and then he died, and I went through all the lies that had been told me in my life about me from principals and neighbors and relatives, and I think the correlation between creating vision and owning your story is when you have a vision for your own life, you're clear about your purpose, your values, your legacy. What is your contribution in the company to your people? It will, should, must dovetail with your ability to create a story for the organization. What is the vision? In the, in the book, I share, a, I think, a legitimate comparison, not from me, but about Walt Disney. Walt Disney was arguably one of the most um, competent visionaries of our lifetime. I had, a, had a, the privilege of working for Disney for four years. His ability to pa paint such an inspiring but achievable vision is so manifested in, you know, 40 years later. Oh, gosh, no, 60 years later, right? They're still, they're still building out components of Walt Biz Disney's dream. They don't have an obligation to honor Walt Disney, right? It's a public company now, and he's long gone. But his ability to communicate an aspirational but also achievable vision is what proves his legacy is so enduring. I think sometimes leaders think they should set goals that are unachievable because if you actually achieve your goal, you've lost because it's been set too low. I think that is a horrifying leadership trait. Set goals that are stretch but reachable because people want to win. And when they win – Celebrate it. So make sure that you have a vision and you communicate it over and over and over again. And don't be so arrogant, Greg, as to think that only you can have the vision. Right? Ask people, what do you think about this? And what would you add to it? Because some people, while they're repeating it back to you, might have some things to add to it that make more sense. I, I do think a great leadership competency is great leaders can change their minds, not mm -hmm. hourly or daily. But they're humble enough to realize that you might not have all parts of this locked down. You're not as smart as you think you are. And that great leaders can talk on the vision, move left, move right, as needed. That was a long story. But I think there's enormous value by reading the book and then really understanding how does owning your story, your personal journey, connect to the vision competency as a leader? Yeah, I think the connection between those, Scott, is really important. And on that 
note uh, about Walt Disney. When I was eight years old, I was in um, Palm Springs and I got in the elevator with my dad and lo and behold, Walt Disney was riding the wow. elevator down. And I said to my dad, that's Walt Disney. And he said, yeah. And I put my hand out and he says, hello, little boy. And wow. he shook my hand and I was literally, I'll be 65 July 3rd. Um, <laughs> I, I remember that moment like it was yesterday because I was in awe, eight years old to meet. And he was out there trying to recuperate from um, his cancer. Uh, I see. And he he would go out to the desert for the fresh, hot yep. air because he had yeah. cancer. But um, yeah, he was out in Palm Springs quite a bit actually. So that's a great yeah, story. Yeah, it was. A, it's a wonderful story because I can never forget it. He looked thin. He looked gaunt. Uh, but the reality was, it still was Walt Disney, and I got to shake his hand. So right. that right. that was a that was a big one for me. So look, in wrapping up here this interview, Scott, we've had we've covered you know four or five of these. There's 30 of them in the book. Uh, just want to let my listeners know that you know I get a lot of books in here, and I don't say this often. The design of the book, the layout of the book. There's a lot to be said for how a book is designed, laid out, and put together. Um, this book is exceptional. Um, throughout it, there's reminders, there's prompts, there's opportunities for you. Uh, to uh, what I want to say, the summary in the back uh, of each one of these, which a lot of books do, but this one is really simple. You could read this book on a plane flight from here to probably Dallas, right? Uh, right. When I say San Diego to Dallas. So this is something you get your yellow highlighter out and work with, but what would you like to leave the listeners with, with relation to how they're going to use this book to transform not only their management style themselves, but all the others underneath them. I know you have an offer at the website where you say buy non-copies and you get them relatively right. inexpensively. You've got these webinars up at the website as well that are, uh, they've already passed, but they're still there. Um, synchronistically, you can, you can access those. He's also got the newest content which uh, you can click on the page under resources. And there are a plethora of interviews there with uh, Guy Kawasaki. He's been on my show many, many, many times. Man, is he um, a class act? He is such a class a, act. He's a class guy. You've yeah. got all these wonderful access the, uh, that you can get to these interviews, which is, you know, when you look at Covey, you say, hey, Covey is about helping people transform. What do you want to tell people this book is going to help them transform do? Yeah, I think into owning your messes. I believe, like you, I've been in this business now for 30 years. I think that vulnerability is going to rise to the top, probably thanking Brene Brown. But for me, it's been a passion for a decade plus. I think leaders who can be vulnerable, that can admit their messes, that can say in front of their colleagues, you know what, I'm not sure. I have all the answers to this, or this isn't a talent of mine. I'm working on it. I think that is so refreshing. It's endearing for people who are more junior than you, and both in comp and age, and some places even skill, to be able to be safe with their leader. That doesn't mean you wallow in your, your challenges or you throw in the towel. Of course not, right? I'm constantly challenging my own message. But I do believe what I, wanna, what I want to come out of this book, I wanted to start – a safe conversation where it's okay to admit 
that you've got some management messes. We've all got them. And the more secure, confident leaders are willing to share them, laugh about them. Not things that are, you know, illegal or moral, right, respecting people. Those are, you know, non-starters. Character is everything. I write a chapter about it in the back of the book. But I wanted to have this conversation become not just safe, but really become a badge of honor where leaders can admit they're just like the rest of us, right? They've just been promoted and they've, maybe they sold more or they came to work an hour earlier and worked harder than some people. That doesn't mean that they've got it all wrapped up. I certainly don't. And so I think this concept of owning your messes, move to success, and make, make it a badge of honor. Recognize that, you know, you two have been there. The connection that you'll build with people will be lifelong if they find you relatable. I think the the book is it's loaded with really 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 good advice for people to put that to work. If you took each one of these every day, or just picked one, you know, take your finger and pick on one of them, like mm-hmm. talk straight, balance courage and consideration, uh, slow loyalty, hold regular one on ones, protect your team against urgency, um, any of them. Uh, and read the three or four pages right after that, right? This isn't like, this is this is a simple book. You read it, it and apply it. You read it and you apply it. I have a uh, an acronym for apps on our phone. I, I usually do talks and I say, how many apps do you have on your phone? People will say, I got a hundred. And I go, well, how many oh, of them do you really use? <laughs> and they say, well, I use three of them. And I say, well, what does an app do? Well, an app creates awareness if it's a good one. And then after awareness, it creates action. And after action, it creates an activity. And after activity, it creates adoption. So think of Scott's book like that app. It's going to ping you and it's going to remind you each day to do one of these, to make you aware, to take an action, to do an activity, and then to adopt that new activity. And I think that would be a great way for people to use this book. Um, Scott, pleasure having you on the show, spending some time with me and our listeners talking about the management mess. And for all of you, um, go, we'll have a link to Amazon to the book. Um, they're, they're out, obviously. You can buy these in bulk as well, and you can get them through the website. Um, and there are additional discounts for that if you do. So if you have a team of people that you want to bring in, or if you want to bring Scott in to actually speak, you can do that. So it's management mess to leadership success, 30 day challenges to become the leader, uh, you would follow Scott. Thanks so much for being on the show. Greg, my honor, man. Keep up the great podcast. Honored to be part of your lineup. This podcast is brought to you by Barbara Sabin, the author of Gentle Energy Touch, the beginner's guide to hands-on healing. Please listen to podcast number 721, where Barbara and Greg speak about how anyone can access their own healing powers to move pinned-up energy which is affecting their body negatively. Blocked energy in our bodies can manifest as depression, anxiety, fear, arthritis, and many other illnesses. Learn from Barbara how you can move this blocked energy in your chakras and create healing in your own body in her new book, Gentle Energy Touch. Please listen to podcast number 721 with Barbara Sabin. 
To learn more about Barbara and access her many resources, please visit www.barbrasavin.com. Thanks for listening.